200 years ago in Rome that wasn't so, is a time of self-proclaimed long-standing peace, but it wasn't so peaceful for the nations that Rome was going around and conquering during that 200-year period. If you've heard about the Pax Romana, it's, it's talked about like this sought-after treasure lost to history because we feel like long-standing peace like that is impossible. Impossible to have, it's impossible to maintain. But the truth is, you and I don't really need a history lesson to know that you and I long for peace. Sometimes we can't even think about having world or national peace because I'm just trying to figure out how to be at rest in my own life right now. And that's the thing. You, you and I, as those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, the King of kings, who has paved a way for the peace of God, we are, uni- we are uniquely positioned for that Jesus to bring powerful supernatural peace to us right now. Not subjective peace, not fragile peace, not peace wrought by a lifestyle of comfort, not peace on our world's terms, but real and deep settled assurance of God and his promises. Even if you're opposed or suffering or weary, no doubt like Paul was writing this letter And here's the promise from the text this morning. In Jesus Christ, you have access to the soul-stabilizing, to soul-stabilizing peace in every circumstance. Anything you could experience, anything that you can imagine, you have access to soul-stabilizing peace through Christ. The Philippian church has a few things that might scare them out of their minds, and you probably do too. You might not be an overly anxious person, but there are things that stir you in a way that causes you excessive concern or worry. Or you might be very anxious and you find yourself in a state of constant fear. We are such fearful and fragile people, aren't we? So what do you do as Christians when the world, the flesh, the devil, who are opposed to King Jesus come against us and when hardship and even persecution launch themselves on us in an all-out assault of our faith, we rely upon this, that we have access to soul-stabilizing peace, not just in general, but in Jesus Christ, in a person. And the reason why we can have it in every circumstance is because God is an unchanging God, and our text describes him as he is described elsewhere, the God of peace. So to add to that main statement, in Jesus Christ, you have access to soul-stabilizing peace in every circumstance because Jesus is the God of peace. As with, as with all of Scripture that we come to, this passage is, has built into it the question of faith. Are we able to take God at his word? Am I able to read this believingly? Can he provide a settled peace in that situation or this one that I'm in right now? And if so, how do I end up accessing it? How do I get in on it? And that's what Paul is telling the Philippians, and he shows them how in three ways. The first way is the first way to access that soul-stabilizing peace is by trading anxiety for peace through prayer. 
We'll read that verse again, the, the ending in, in verse five. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will do what? It will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. To a church like the one in Philippi that is experiencing serious threats for believing in and proclaiming Christ, who is disunified, fighting amongst themselves, disagreeing amongst themselves, these four words have within them a world of application. The Lord is at hand. Pastor Steve visited this a bit last week because Paul is calling us to stand firm. He's calling us to rejoice in the Lord as he's been doing over and over again. Experience this joy that you can have in Christ which makes way for gentleness with people rather than harsh impatience. And part of the reason why we can be gentle now and even wronged now is that the Lord is at hand. He's near to us. He is present as his Holy Spirit lives within us. We can't go anywhere that he is not beside us. What a relief. He's not busy or occupied such that, such that he'll, he'll be late in our time of need. He's at hand. But this phrase, the Lord is at hand, applies to both rejoicing in the Lord, which we heard last week, that's verse four, rejoicing in the Lord, but also not being anxious. And we can do both primarily because Jesus is at hand. The Lord is present and close to us, but he's also at hand because he's coming back for us. His coming is also at hand. James 5, 8 says, you also be patient, Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. For us as Christians, these two, two promises are like life rings of hope in our times of trouble. The Lord is with me and the Lord is coming for me. The Lord, Jesus, our Savior, is with us right now, never to leave us. And he's coming to deliver us fully and finally. Fear not, I am with you. And fear not, because I'm coming to take you from this cursed and broken world, and I will live with you in a new one. Think about this. When, when someone is injured or in danger and they pick up the phone, they dial three very important numbers, 911. In the midst of trying to describe what's going on, what are the most comforting words that the dispatcher could give that frantic, scared person on the other side of that call. Do you have a guess, anybody? Help is on the way. There is help, and it's on the way. In other words, for us, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. His help is here right now, and you wonder why the Holy Spirit is called the helper. He's here now, and help is on the way. It is coming soon. And I love, I love that at the end of the Bible, the last chapter in Revelation, three times the risen Lord says to John and the churches, behold, behold, surely I'm coming soon. That's, that's what I want to leave you with in, in this 
this story of redemption, we see that last picture of no tears and a new heaven and new earth and glory with our Savior, Jesus Christ. And the one last little um, um, piece or word that he gives us is, I'm coming soon. Hold on to that. You will not face whatever you're facing forever. That's the assurance that Paul is giving the Philippians too. If you're, if you're anxious, especially about being abandoned by Jesus or that he doesn't, no, doesn't notice this difficulty that you're in, no, he's at hand and he's coming. That's why he says, do not be anxious about anything. Now I realize that for some of us, we may have heard this described in a very um, uh, heavy way. Just don't, just don't be anxious. What are you, what are you, what's wrong with you? That's not, that's not Paul's encouragement here. He's saying, he's laying the groundwork and saying, in Christ truly there is nothing that we have a need to be anxious about. We, we, there's nothing that, that would require us to be unsettled in our spirit about. What might the Philippians be anxious about? Well, first, they're anxious about their dear friend, Paul. They're wondering what's gonna happen to him. Is he gonna make it out of prison? Is he going to be killed? They're probably anxious about whether this church is going to implode because of the unreconciled disagreements. I don't know how bad this Yodia and Syntyche situation is. I don't know how it's gonna pan out or how it's bled into other people's lives. They might be worked up about that. They're anxious whether they might be arrested for proclaiming Christ. On top of all that, they're likely anxious about the same things that you and I tend to be anxious about. Do they wonder certain things about their kids or their future? Do some have elderly parents? What about their jobs? Are those at stake? Or might they be worried about their livelihood? It's into our restless worry that Paul, with affectionate care for them, says, brothers and sisters, don't be anxious about anything. Not as this act of will that you'll somehow snap out of it, as if we can magically make ourselves not worried about something. We've We've probably tried that a time or two. Rather, do not be anxious about anything. He's not just leaving it at that. He continues his thought to say, but in everything. Don't be anxious in anything. There's nothing that requires us to be anxious. And in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Everything, meaning everything that, that would draw you to be anxious, everything that would seek to cast doubt on God's control or his power or his interest or his love, anything that would give rise to that, everything by prayer and supplication, make these known to God. Maybe it's a political situation or your health or the health of someone you love. You're standing with God in the midst of your failures or that difficult conversation that's coming up or that needs to happen or the presence and threats of the evil one on you seemingly constantly. All of those things, every one of those things, here's Paul's solution, pray. And that's probably a solution that we might 
feel like we're tired of hearing. That's, everybody's telling me to pray and read my Bible more, pray and read my Bible more. And, and yet, in Paul, he's saying, it's not just, hey, if you find yourself anxious, just pray. It is, it is he sees a direct connection between if, if you find yourself in an anxious place, I know where you should go. I know where you should take those and not leave them as anxieties, but, but to form them into requests from this God. You probably recognize the words from what a friend we have in Jesus. Are we weak and heavy laden? Yes. Cumbered with a load of care? Yes. Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise, forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms, he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. So Paul seems to think that there's this direct line from your undue concern and prayer. And it's not that we have to fill up our prayer tank so we offset our anxiety tank, but rather... We often let that undue concern eat us from the inside out without ever making mention of it in prayer or, or we're convinced that this just doesn't work or it's too small or it's too basic or, or it's too complicated for me to even sort out. How, how do, where do I even begin? Paul's calling us to form those anxious thoughts into requests given to the God who's at hand who is with us, who is coming for us, and entrusting our lives again and again and again into his sovereign care. Now, why thanksgiving? That's not to say you just add a couple drops of thanksgiving into the prayer, and then it's gonna work. Rather, thanksgiving is this tremendous tool to look to God in faith rather than suspicion or doubt. It, the, the psalmist kind of describes this as recounting the deeds of the Lord. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, they're back here somewhere. I'm gonna bring them, bring them to the forefront. I'm gonna recall them, whether, whether his works towards us in Christ or the specific th- things he's done in my life that I've gained comfort and known his tender mercy from. I'm gonna bring those up. And, and as that happens, the Lord uses that to, to bring fresh faith for us. God, I, I thank you that you're good, that you've said so, you've promised that over and over again. And I also thank you that you've promised that somehow all things work together for the good of those who love you. Lord, I, I love you. That's why I'm coming to you in the first place. Lord, I'm anxious. I'm freaking out about this thing. Would you fill in the blank? What is that request get formed into. It is, it is a, an anxious thought that's on repeat over here. Lord, you're at hand. You are near to me. You are coming. You care for me. I, I thank you for your promises to me. Would you do this? Would you, would you help me? Would you sustain me? It doesn't have to sound a certain way, but giving thanks to God is, is a key way in which we remember who exactly is it that I'm bringing this request before And rather than voicing our concerns from an island, this isolated place, it assures us that we're making these requests from right in front of the throne of grace. We don't have to yell for him to hear us. 
He is there before us. That, that veil that Jesus tore is kind of, we pass through the tatters of that, coming to his throne of grace and saying, Lord, I thank you that, that you welcome me here and that I can breathe out my complaints and my requests to you. And what's the result? What does is, what is Paul promise will happen? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's a peace that comes from God in those anxious moments that does not make sense to us. I'm not saying that it's like mystical purely. I'm just saying that we can't trace here is exactly why I'm experiencing a, a peace that, that has overridden or, or swallowed up my anxiety about X, Y, and Z. I'd venture to guess that many of you have come to a time or lots of times where you, your life felt like a disaster, but there was an inexplicable but real and palpable peace that God gave you. Unannounced, certain, something that you could depend on. So do you remember those moments? Those, those moments are literally evidence of this promise in Philippians 4. The God of peace will supply peace to you that surpasses your understanding and it will guard your hearts. Somebody that, that I think of is Stephen. When Stephen preached the gospel with poise and certainty to a people that then turned around and stoned him to death for blasphemy, the Holy Spirit gave him a glimpse of what? Do you remember the story? The heavens were parted and Stephen caught a glimpse and the assurance that Jesus was standing at the right hand of God. That's not accidental. It wasn't just, it wasn't just Jesus' face or something like that. It was a clear evidence. Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father. He is ruling and reigning. That is where my peace is found. That is what enabled Stephen to not fret over the situation being changed, but peace being granted in the midst of his attackers helped him endure being martyred for Christ. So this understanding surpassing peace comes to us directly from God as we bring these requests to him and it guards our hearts and our minds. The word guard is exactly what it sounds like. It is like a bodyguard or a military guard. The peace of God is a stalwart peace. It's not a defeated peace. The peace that God brings stands guard over your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, even as you continually give those anxious thoughts to him over and over again. And some of you might be thinking right now, I've, try, I've been trying that. I've been doing that. And yet, the invitation is still here. It still remains. Because well, what better place do we have to go? And that's not to say just keep on trying, maybe it'll work eventually. Try in faith, saying, this is, God, this is a promise that you've given me. God loves for us to count on his promises. I think of 
when Moses interceded for the people on Mount Sinai, he's saying, God, what are the nations going to think of you that, that your chosen people you just wiped out? Moses is, is recalling God's own promise, not that God needed to be convinced, but it's more so, God, this is all I've got is your word. All I've got is you've told me that your peace, which surpasses my understanding, is going to guard me right now. I need defended because I am being assaulted and assailed by anxious thoughts. There is an attacker, whether it's my own thoughts or the evil one hounding me. I'm relying on your promise. Will you do this for me? Do you ever think that God gets anxious? Even just a little twinge of uneasy about things. I think we're so, we're so used to being worried that it's hard to imagine anyone who is utterly unworried. God has never had a sense that things are out of control because everything belongs and is in his control. This peace comes from that God, the God of peace who, who authored peace and who is the one who is working peace. We've, we've had a very distinct experience of that in Christ. We have been brought to peace with God, which we'll talk about in a moment, but God is the one who dispenses this peace, and our hearts and minds are guarded specifically in who? Christ Jesus. That's not just like a tack-on phrase. As Christians, we must be confident that true peace, whether peace with God or circumstantial peace, they're not two different things. I have peace with God here, and then if I need help in a circumstance, um, I just need to escape or I need to, I need to fix the problem. No, both Versions of peace come from Christ himself. He is our peace. Even for those who are helped by medication with the mysterious way our bodies and minds work, Jesus is still who we throw ourselves on and rely upon to bring us peace in anxious moments so that we will be spiritually guarded. He is he's the only one who can do that. I often spend so much time asking God to change the difficult situation that I've forgotten that the peace of God is supplied by Jesus himself, who is not hindered by circumstance from providing that which I am hoping change will bring. I'm, I'm counting on change. That's why, that's why there's, there's this idea that if I just like change scenery, if I just move, move to a different place, things are gonna start to go right. That's not the vehicle of peace. Christ is the supplier. He's the one who brings peace. And the, the circumstances don't even necessarily have to change. They can remain the same. It would be understandable peace if I do X, Y, and Z and it results in peace. But if none of X, Y, and Z that I thought should have happened have happened and I still wind up with peace at the end, that surpasses my understanding. That is supernatural peace from the God of peace. Jesus was careful to assure us that he is aware that we're anxious and that he can uphold us in those moments. In between talking about God looking after the birds and clothing the fragile lilies of the field, Jesus said, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? 
That's not a condemning thing. That is an understanding place. Well, if you remember his words to Martha, who is anxiously serving folks, her sister Mary is sitting with Jesus. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. In a kind of sort of a picture, Mary would be like the person who is anxious but who is bringing their request with thanksgiving to God and the peace of God that surpasses understanding is guarding her. Martha would be the person who is restless. In church, we're anxious about lots of things. And yet Jesus, who is the God of peace, can provide for us that which nothing and no one else can provide, which is a settled assurance of what? That we're his that we're safely his, even if we are nowhere near safe in our situation. One way that we access this is by stirring our faith with thanksgiving as we bring anxious thoughts in the forms of requests to a generous God. He will give you peace that doesn't quite make sense and it will guard you in Christ Jesus. Another way that Paul invites us to access this peace is by filling our minds with what is good. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. This list of things to think about may seem unrelated to being anxious and experiencing God's peace, but it's some of of Paul's final instructions to the church in Philippi. This is one of the last things I'm going to leave you with. Brothers, finally, brothers. It's very important to Paul that the Philippians' minds are first guarded by God's peace and then not just left free of anxiety, but filled and occupied with worthy things. Paul's a smart cookie because he's taken some of the common terms that the Greeks loved when it comes to talking about virtue and honor. And he uses them to describe what the Philippians should think about and benefit from. The Greeks spent a lot of thought on pursuing what is true and honorable or noble, but Paul's using those words and putting them in uniquely Christian terms. In fact, Paul cares very deeply about what Christians think about. That should be instructive for us. Do we care deeply about what what we ourselves think about? But you might take that in a few different ways. That might sound to you like intellectual thought. Just get busy reading up on your theology. But Paul's aiming at more than intellectual pursuits. He's after an entire life of thought spent on good things. If you're on the other end of the spectrum, you might, you might, or or this, this might come to mind, you might recoil because you hate when Christianity gets too heady and you're convinced that growing closer to Jesus and experiencing his peace looks more like emptying your mind. You have to wonder that Paul is not telling us to empty our minds, but to fill them. Again, not just intellectual things, but filling our thoughts with good things. And still yet, you may read these verses and, and you've heard them and they sound just like this 
this tool to keep us from watching bad movies or from reading bad books. Now, I think in some ways it includes that, but it's, so, it's much more than that. In all of these cases, consider the first and greatest commandment. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. What we think about is a part of our whole being, which was made to love and worship our great God who has saved us in Christ. What you think about matters deeply. It matters for the sake of experience of the God of peace, and it matters in revealing our true heart. You may not spend much time thinking about what you think about, but Paul is inviting us to to healthily scrutinize what what we're choosing to let have a home in our minds, which is why he gives us this litmus test. First, is it true? Is what I am pursuing right now or what I think about regularly based upon truth, whether truth of fact or truth of God's word. We want to make a habit of prioritizing what is true in our hearts and minds. I heard, I heard somewhere this week, Christians, Christians love thinking about true things. They, are, they love being grounded in reality. We love what's true. Otherwise, we're being misled. So for example, is what you're choosing to think on predicated upon reality? Or is it unproven conspiracy? Is it based on false things said about someone else? Are you entertaining things that are partial truths? Is it honorable? Or is it dishonorable and vulgar? Is it dignified? What are you choosing to dwell on? Or what do you make a habit of dwelling on? Is it just? In other words, is it right? Is what I'm dwelling on morally tainted in some way? Or does it reflect the purity of God himself? No mixture. Is it pure? Is it just? The next, is it, is it pure? Or is it defiled? Is what I'm, oh, excuse me, I skipped, I skipped just. Is it right? Is what I'm thinking on based on God's evaluation of right and wrong? And then is it pure? Does it reflect the purity of God? Is it lovely? Is it worthy of admiration and taking a closer look? Or is it something that is horrifying and loathsome? Is it commendable? Is it something that other discerning people would commend or applaud? The last two in this verse act as catch-alls for the other qualities. There are excellent and praiseworthy things to take into account. Occupy yourselves with those things. Think on those things. There are good and pure things, for example, in our culture, the things that we see that are worth, worth considering and worth celebrating. There are. But there are also notable and dishonorable and untrue things that we can still find ourselves uh, allowing to have a place in our minds. And not just blatantly vile things. I know that's, that's the immediate thing that we think of, and it's, it's totally valid. But are there things that are anti-God and anti-gospel that have the way of tickling our ears? Are we attuned to those things? Are we watchful over those things? Keep your heart with vigilance. The truth is that it's, it's easy to passively dwell on things that, that run completely contrary to how Christ would have us live or maybe, 
maybe things that would keep us in a place of worry, that will keep our church body tearing at the seams like the Philippians might have felt, that will keep you silent and fearful of opposition with regard to proclaiming the gospel, that will cast doubt on God's design or his existence, that will subtly or not so subtly make powerful suggestions to you that sound a lot like, did God really say? This verse reminds me a bit of a voltmeter. We use a voltmeter to test lots of things. We test batteries. We test wires so that we don't accidentally barehandedly grab a wire that will shock us and can hurt us or maybe even stop our heart. It detects that which is harmful and destructive. This list does that and more, steering us away from patterns of thought that are evil and also inviting us into thinking about that which is good and right and which makes, for, makes a way for, for the peace of God. Think about true and lovely things. Be on the hunt for what's commendable. Search out dignity. What about that story is very, very true. What about that story is subtly and utterly wrong? We want to be mature believers who have had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice, able to tell the difference between good and evil. If we think about what is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable for the sake of saying we did it, then we've missed the point. The point is that thinking on these things contributes to what the next verse calls practicing what Paul has demonstrated and told the Philippians. The purpose of thinking on these things, particularly the the true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable word of God, where we find the truest and loveliest and purest Christ, that will begin to chart our course for going on living in a manner worthy of the gospel because what we think about matters deeply. And that's that's the most direct way to apply what Paul is saying here. You and I would do well to think about Jesus, to ponder the mercy of God shown to us in Jesus, to think about it regularly. I don't think we'll waste a moment there. Filling our thoughts with things that lead us to to the praise and worship of Christ and which drive us to love others, those are good things to think about and to be occupied with. Paul is saying, think about those things. A third way that Paul invites us to access this soul-stabilizing peace is by practicing what we've received in Philippians. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul, now Paul has every right to call us to imitate him as he's already done in this letter and he does in other letters. But what is it exactly that we, along with the Philippians, have learned and received and heard and seen specifically in Paul? First of all, we've, we've received the gospel itself in a very real way, us, us being in America now, I wonder, would the gospel have made it here were it not for Paul's efforts? But also we have the gospel in written form I think of 1 Corinthians 15, I pass on to you this, Christ died, he was buried, he was raised, he appeared to our brothers. 
We've seen Paul's devoted love for Christ. We've seen his undeniable love for others. The Philippians have seen his hard work for the sake of people knowing Christ. They've seen his joy rooted solely, solely in Jesus Christ. His anticipation of eternity, his confidence in the face of opposition, his zeal for the church, for his brothers and sisters and co-laborers, Like a teacher with his students, Paul has lived before the Philippians and is is now writing to them to show them the ropes, demonstrating what it looks like to thrive within the peace of God, which leads to joy in Christ, sacrifice for Christ, and a deeper knowledge of Jesus Christ. Something I'd love to know is, what have you learned from Paul's example so far in Philippians? Because these words were also written for us I think we can read this last verse as a direct exhortation. Almost two millennia later, Sovereign Grace Church Dayton, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Paul says, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. What have you seen and received and heard from Paul? Again, nothing less than the gospel of Christ in the pages of his letters. You've seen his supernatural Christ-focused joy. You've seen all of what the Philippians have seen short of him being present with us. And Paul is inviting us to do as he does and act out what he has acted out. We're continuing to follow his footsteps here because he was a man who deeply loved and trusted Jesus Christ in the hardest of circumstances. I, w- I was told once that you, you can, to a degree, learn a particular skill Partially, I know, I know there's different camps here. Do you just get busy quickly doing it and learning as you go? In some ways, if you don't have the opportunity to do that, you can partially learn a skill by watching someone do it over and over and over again before you even try it yourself. You visualize. And I think there's a real sense in which you and I, even if we haven't found ourselves in such a dire situation as Paul's, we're watching and we're seeing, how does this man interact with imprisonment? How does, he, how does he deal with this? And we're watching his joy overflow coming from a very particular source, which is Christ. You see him run to the cross of Jesus over and over again to be assured of God's extreme love for Paul. And we watch him arise with confidence that God will keep his word. His peace will guard me. He will be with me. He is worthy of all praise and glory and suffering and proclaiming. And so we're watching him and and we are uh, rehearsing and rehashing how does a man or a woman like myself following Paul's footsteps, how do, I do, how do I do that? How do I have access to such a supernatural joy, such a supernatural peace? And the result of watching Paul do this and watching us exercise it ourselves is this, the God of peace will be with you. It sounds like he's talking as someone with firsthand experience. I know that beyond the shadow of a doubt, and I wouldn't be writing this letter to you from prison about joy in Christ if the God of peace was not with me. And believe it or not, it's a conditional promise. For example, if we aren't walking in humility like chapter two, like Christ-like, 
sacrificial, other-serving humility, Scripture says God opposes the proud. If we're counting on our track record to carry us, then we don't have the righteousness from God that Paul talked about in chapter 3. So it is of utmost importance that we don't just heed Paul's advice. This isn't just pure duty. It's also delight because what Paul has lived out in front of the Philippians and lived out in front of us is written down to assure us that it is possible to have an indestructible joy and peace, not by a certain lifestyle, but by being further and further convinced that Jesus, who has saved us and made us his own, and who is at work with us, and he guards us with his peace, and who will receive us at the resurrection, is totally and completely ours. He is ours. We don't have to live the same life Paul lived to to hear Paul say that and to believe and say, this same Jesus is mine just like, just like he's yours, Paul. He is mine just like he's yours. And we have this promise through Paul that he will be with us if we stick to this gospel and live in a manner worthy of it. May, may we take that promise with us that God's peace will guard us for making our requests, our anxious requests known to him. His peace will guard us. If we are practicing what Paul has embodied in Philippians for us, the God of peace will be with us.